This morning's scripture reading is taken from Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Father, we pray that uh, as we encounter you and your word this morning, that you would open our eyes to see you. Be with the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts, Father, as we look at your word for the next few minutes here this morning. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. If you were uh, with us last week, uh, we hope you enjoyed your time at our, at our family meal as we kind of did something a little different last week. But if you're with us, you'll know that, that we're starting a new series here at City Church that we hope they'll kind of take us up to Memorial Day weekend. And the series is from this book of Revelation, the very last book in the Bible. And if you've ever read it before, you know that the book of Revelation is a very, very unique book in the New Testament. Because what it does is it records visions that the Apostle John saw when he was on the island of Patmos. But it's a book of visions. It's a book of pictures. Some people have looked at the book of Revelation as if it's a puzzle and they've got to put all the pieces together and decode whatever code is in there. But that's not really the book's intent. The book's intent is to provide us with a picture. One of my friends uh, compared the book of Revelation to the Wizard of Oz. Now, I know Wicked, uh, the musical, is in town right now, but I'm talking about the old, old version of The Wizard of Oz that we've all seen at some point in our lives. And if you've seen it, you know the movie starts out in black and white. And then Dorothy, in, in some crazy storm, gets transferred or transported to Oz. And when she's in Oz, she sees all these kind of visit, vi, uh, vivid images. And, and the, it changes from the drab black and white to these bright, incredible colors. And, and she spends this adventure in Oz. And, and after her vision or after her dream, everything about her life has changed. And in some ways, that's what we see in the book of Revelation. We see a powerful vision. We see powerful images. And because of that, our lives ought to be changed. But the book doesn't just do that for us individually. It certainly does do it for us as individuals. But it means something for us as well as a community of believers, and what we've been doing is focusing on just of the first few chapters in the book of Revelation that contain seven letters to seven urban churches in the ancient world. And these letters, they're full of encouragements and corrections and commands and promises and images. 
But what they do for us in the process is they help us to figure out what it means to be a church. And they're especially important for us as we figure out what it means to be a young church in a very urban context. The letter that we just read this morning, the letter to the church at Smyrna, is actually a different letter than all the other letters that we will look at. Because it is the only letter out of all of them that doesn't contain any sort of correction. Instead, all it does is offer encouragement and promises. And as we look at the letter, all I want to do is look at one truth that it teaches us and then answer three questions that come as we consider what that one truth is. And the one truth is this. It is that suffering is a distinctive mark of what it means to be the church. Verse 9 says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation, but be faithful unto death. See, Smyrna was a a very proud, ancient, and beautiful city. It housed about probably 200,000 people, and it was about 35 miles north of the city of Ephesus that we looked at last week, 35 miles north on the Aegean Sea. It was a, it was a beautiful harbor city. Many people believe that uh, it was the birthplace of Homer. If you've ever had to read the Iliad and the Odyssey back in school, you'll know that those books came from Homer, who came from the city of Smyrna. It was a city that was full of idols to all sorts of different gods that existed in the ancient world, but they were especially known for being engaged in the imperial cult. You see, back in in the ancient world, Rome was still in charge in the ancient world. And as Rome grew in its popularity, so did all the mystique and power that surrounded the emperor. Emperors towards the end were treated as little gods. They were treated as deities. And in many cities, people were actually required to worship the emperor. And Smyrna was one of those cities. It was the first city to build an ancient temple that is dedicated solely to the worship of the Roman emperor of the day. And the city's entire society and its entire economy was built around the worship of the Roman emperor of the day. Now, you can obviously imagine that for Christians in Smyrna, this proved to be quite a problem. Because for them to worship the emperor was a contradiction to their faith in Jesus Christ. They simply could not worship the emperor. To do so for them would have been sin. And because of their obedience, their obedience would bring a serious, serious cost. Because the society was built around this emperor cult, for Christians to not engage in the worship of the emperor would mean that they would be moved to the margins of society. They would be cast out. 
Because they would not participate in the temple economy, they would all be cast into a very severe poverty, all because of their faith. They would be subject to mobs who would regularly enter and loot their homes. And the Jews who would be exempt from the emperor worship because of religious reasons became the ultimate tattletales for the Christians. They would actively inform the Romans of the disobedience of the Christians. They would spread lies about the Christians, saying that they were engaged in incest, that they were cannibals, and they were actual atheists. So for many Christians in Smyrna, this would surely mean the death of their, uh, of their, 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 their death. They would be executed because of their treason. So what Jesus does through John is he informs them that they will face an even more intense persecution for a period of 10 days. Now, some have looked at that and said that this is really just a literal 10-day period where they are going to face an intense persecution. But most likely, 10 was more of a symbolic number that meant a time of completion, meaning that their lives would end in a very short period of time. And they were called to endure until they were killed. Imagine how sobering this letter must have been to those Christians in Smyrna, Smyrna, that they receive a letter from Jesus himself informing them that their death was imminent. One of the most famous Christian martyrs was uh, a man named Polycarp, and he was the the bishop of Smyrna uh, in the ancient world. And the story tells us that that Polycarp was uh, arrested for being a Christian. And all his friends came around him and tried to talk him out of it. They tried to say to him, all you have to say is Caesar is Lord. All you have to do is curse Jesus and just sprinkle a little bit of incense in the temple. But Polycarp refused. And because of that, they dragged him into the arena and they burned him at the stake. He refused even to allow his hands to be tied to the stake. Instead, he stood there willingly praying for his captors while they set the fires around him that would take his life. And many other Christians from Smyrna suffered the very same fate as Polycarp. Jesus said in John chapter 15, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, then they will persecute you also. And Paul says something very similar in 2 Timothy when he says, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. And what all these things tell us is that suffering is a distinctive mark of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And it is also a distinctive mark of what it means to be a church. Now, I want to be really clear whenever we talk about uh, suffering, especially uh, in light of something that we read here, because it's easy to confuse. The suffering that's talked about in this passage is not suffering that just simply comes from living in a fallen world. 
And we all do live in a fallen and broken world. And we deal with the realities of that every single day. Things that are difficult and painful. Things that we uh, suffer through because of the reality of sin in our world. But this is not the same kind of suffering that's being talked about in this passage. This is also not suffering that comes from our own just simple stupidity. I've run into many Christians who uh, have done certain things here or there and claim that they were suffering for their faith when in reality they were only suffering because they were being foolish. This is not that kind of suffering. Nor is it suffering for some sort of political issue or stance on a societal issue. It may be related to that, but this is not ultimately that kind of suffering. This is suffering that is a direct result of our faith, a direct result of choosing to follow Jesus Christ with our lives. One author wrote that if the first mark of the true and living church is love, which we saw last week, the second is suffering. The one is naturally consequent of the other because a willingness to suffer proves the genuineness of love. The church is called to suffer. But there are often many questions that come whenever we think about this and whenever we wrestle with this. And the first question, if all this is true, then the first question that you and I need to contend with is why don't we experience more suffering? If this is true of followers of Jesus Christ, if it's true of the church, then why don't we experience more of it? And this is a question that I've wrestled with all week as I've looked at this passage in Smyrna. Because it's easy for us to look out in the world and see that there are places where Christians are suffering all throughout the world. Just this past Friday, we read a story on on CNN or saw this on the news about 12 Christians from Nigeria and Ghana who were thrown overboard and drowned in the sea simply because they were Christians. We've read stories about Christian children and families being butchered for their faith in the Middle East. We've heard stories of countries where Christianity has been outlawed, where churches like ours have to meet in secret for fear that they will be arrested and imprisoned. Our world is full of stories like this, and history is littered with stories like this as well. But what does it mean for you and I in our particular cultural moment where our freedom for worship is still maintained. It's often threatened, but it is still maintained. And as I've wrestled with that question this week, what it means for us to suffer, I've come to the conclusion that we need to be grateful for our cultural moment. But at the same time, we also need to be very, very cautious. And we need to ask ourselves, some really hard questions when it comes to suffering. Questions like these. Does our lack of persecution mean that we have compromised elements of our faith? Maybe without even knowing it. Does our lack of persecution mean that we have chosen not to fully embrace this faith that Christ is calling us to? 
We may not be burning incense to Caesar like they did in the ancient world, but are we in some ways no different? Are we worshiping the God of materialism and comfort rather than worshiping Jesus Christ himself? Is Jesus simply some sort of moral veneer that we've added on to our worship of the gods of this culture? Are we truly following Jesus with our lives or are we only picking and choosing what we want to believe about him and ultimately want we, what we obey about him? Are we only willing to follow Jesus when it adds to our personal comfort and the moment anything painful or uncomfortable comes up, we choose to follow something else? We have to ask ourselves these hard questions whenever we consider what it means to suffer for our faith. But another question we have to ask ourselves is, what is the byproduct that comes from suffering? And there are all sorts of byproducts that come from suffering. What are elements of the faith that maybe you and I miss out because we don't necessarily uh, experience a whole lot of suffering for our faith. And there are many byproducts, but I want to look at two really quickly. The first thing we see is that suffering naturally produces greater faith. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a, a, a great fictional book at some point uh, in, his, in his life called The Screwtape Letters. And it's kind of a bizarre book when you first pick it up and start reading it because it is letters that are written from a senior demon to a junior demon. And what that senior demon is doing is he is counseling a junior demon on how to trip up a certain Christian who recently came to the faith. And multiple times throughout the book, the senior demon instructs the junior demon that suffering is actually the enemy. He counsels him to say, keep suffering away from this Christian. He says, whatever you do, keep him safe as you possibly can. Because after all, prosperity knits a man to this world. He feels that he is finding his place in it while really it is finding its place in him. He says one of his greatest weapons that he can use is contented worldliness. He says, make that Christian comfortable because the byproduct of comfort is a weak faith. You see, a byproduct of suffering is an incredibly strong faith. And when you remove all suffering the great temptation is to ultimately have a weak faith as a byproduct. But we also see that suffering produces growth in the church. Every time in human history, when a church has been persecuted, it has exploded in terms of its growth. And even today in our world, the places of greatest persecution are the places where the church is growing most rapidly. And the converse is true. The places where Christianity is most stagnant or declining tends to be the places of greatest comfort and material prosperity. But there's another question that our passage also answers for us too. 
And that is, what is the outlook that often can sustain us when we do face suffering for our faith? You see, Jesus, uh, through John in this passage, offers three simple yet very powerful images. They're kind of reversals or plays upon words. He reminds the, the Smyrnan Christians that though they are poor, in reality, they are rich. He says, though they may feel defeated through this persecution, there is a victor's crown that awaits them. He says, though they may experience physical death in a very short period of time, ultimately, they need not fear the final or the eternal death. See, what Jesus is doing in this letter to them is he is reminding them very powerfully that there is a world beyond what they can see and touch and feel. There is a reality that is even more real than the reality that they are experiencing and the reality that you and I experience every day. There is an eternity that awaits them and an eternity that awaits us. It is a reality in which Jesus Christ is the first and the last and everything in between. You know, when you think about it, uh, in the scope of eternity, our lives here on this planet are actually very short. And the Christians in Smyrna had this perspective. They were willing to suffer temporary poverty and persecution and the fear of death because they understood that an eternity of wealth and bliss and comfort was worth suffering in the temporary. And you and I can actually learn a lot from them and from their perseverance. Because you, like me, probably can have the temptation to become so captured by making this life comfortable and free from any sort of suffering that in the end we can forget that there ultimately is an eternity that awaits us. We can be so captured by this world that we can forget about the world that exists beyond this physical space. But I'm willing to bet that there was actually one other thing that helped sustain those Smyrnan Christians through their persecution, through the midst of their suffering. And that was that they recognized that this Jesus, who was now sitting on this incredibly glorious throne, that this Jesus was the one who at one point was a suffering savior himself. He was the lamb that was led to the slaughter. He was the one who was impoverished just like they were. He was the one who was slandered against. He was the one who was mocked. He was the one who was spit on. He was the one that was betrayed by the Jews, the one who the Jews hated. And ultimately, he was the one who was executed himself by being hung on a tree by the Romans. You see, he willingly suffered for you and I to prove the genuineness of his love for us. He did it all so that you and I could spend an eternity with him. And at some point, he may call you and I to suffer in all sorts of different ways. 
but he never calls us to do something that he wasn't willing first to do for us. He suffered on our behalf. And he may call you and I at some point to suffer in the temporary, but ultimately we know that we can dwell secure in the fact that our eternity is secure in our Savior who suffered for us.